Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the MicroBenfi podcast. Today we have a special panel discussion. It's we're at the seventh microbial bioinformatics hackathon. And this time it's got a special focus on AMR and it's being organized at JPI, AMR, Phage and Climb Big Data. So we have a, a brilliant panel here and I'm going to ask uh, each person to introduce themselves. Okay, uh, Mark. I'm Mark Pallon. I'm a professor of microbial genomics at the University of East Anglia and a research group leader at the Quadrum Institute of Bioscience. In a former life, I was a consultant medical microbiologist. I'm medically trained, but I've seen the light and become an academic in recent years. I dabble in bioinformatics from time to time. Hi, I'm Phil McGuire. I'm about to start an assistant professorship at Dalhousie on the east coast of Canada in computer science and epidemiology. And yeah, I do a lot of work on AMR, AMR metagenomics, shitting on mag methods for plasmids and with CARD and SARS-CoV-2. So just kind of all over kind of AMR bioinformatics and infectious disease bioinformatics. Hi, yeah, I'm Anthony Underwood. I work in the Center for Genomic Pathogen Surveillance and David Anderson's team. I get most excited about actually implementing bioinformatics and actually seeing it in action. Recently, I've been involved in a global health research unit project, which is about implementing global surveillance for AMR based on WGS. That's been very interesting seeing how when you have um, groups who are perhaps novel to the field, you know, how do they go about implementing it and what are the challenges they face when they're doing it from the ground up? So my name is Clement. So I, I'm working in a hospital in, in Qatar at the moment, although maybe I, I may be in a transition very soon. But uh, yeah, I'm a research scientist. So I basically do whole genome sequencing for the AML pathogens collected from the patient, both bacteria and also fungus. So I am the molecular scientist in a clinic, clinical lab and working with the physician and, and the laboratory staff in, in, in the lab. So I help building the, the molecular lab for infectious disease diagnosis and also involved in setting up some the basic pipeline and workflow for whole genome data analysis. In, yeah, AML is important in the Middle East because I, I think very few people actually looking at the box in that part of the world. And I think in that region, people are getting, they're more concerned about the spread and also the transmission of the MDL pathogens in, in the Middle East. I think there's lots of novel discovery during the past few years when I was working in that part of the world. And Actually, not many hospitals are using whole genome sequencing to, to do the detection and also diagnosis. So they basically still rely on the conventional techniques and some of the quick uh, genotyping tests available in the commercial platform to detect whether uh, the bugs carry uh, NDM or KBC or just OXA instead of looking in, the, in depth of the gene, the presence of absence of a particular genes in the bacteria. Awesome. Okay, so my first question really is, 
what what are the major challenges for getting AMR genomics into the clinic? So, you know, we can all see medical microbiologists really want to know immediately what is the AMR profile of a of a pathogen, and we know sequencing can get the, those results pretty quick. But you know, wh- where is the disconnect? What do we need to do to push it over the line and get it a bit uh, closer, Anthony? I think one of the issues is that there's still some skepticism that for genomics, at least, that you can get a really trustworthy result from the genomics data. So for some bugs like TB, there's a growing acceptance that you can get um, faster, better results using genomics. But for other bugs, Pseudomonas assassinatobacter, there's quite a lot of discordance between the phenotypic results and the genomic results. And so I think for some bugs, the the path to actually seeing it into the clinic is much more straightforward, given cost and time, I suppose, as being one of the factors which are very important. But for other bugs, I still still, still think there's a long way to go, and it'll be some time before they can be implemented in a clinical setting and will probably remain in the domain of the surveillance setting for the time being. So what is the lowest hanging fruit in Europe? In terms of bacterial species? Yeah. Oh, well, like I said, TB is, is the obvious one because, I mean, it's implemented already in the UK. UK. Other species, Salmonella, there's a pretty good congruence. Some of the Enterobacteriaceae and Klebsiella is not bad. I, I think there's, there's some pretty good one, pretty good um, concordances with those data. Mark? Well, I, I was on a, a learning curve a few years ago when we were doing some work on ancient TB. We were looking at some 200-year-old genomes from some mummies. And it was only after a certain amount of time scratching his head that the bioinformatician suddenly realised that what he was looking at was a mixture of two genotypes in the same sample. Uh, and I said to him, I said, I don't, I don't, that, that doesn't tie in with my clinical understanding. You don't catch TB twice. It, it's very unusual. What's going on here? The, the, the thing was that his initial pipeline that he used had actually excluded many of the things that were in front of him because it was looking for SNP calling and it was excluding anything that didn't meet a certain uh, criteria. I think it was 70% representation. And in fact, he had two different genotypes mixed together just by chance at roughly 50, 50, you know, 50% each. And, and, and that made it clear to me when, when we looked at the literature, it it was clear that actually there is quite a lot of evidence of mixed infection with TB. And in some areas where TB is as high as prevalence in KwaZulu-Natal, I think it was one in four patients has evidence of mixed infection. Uh, What we found when we were looking at these these samples from 200 years ago in Hungary, when probably in Hungary at that time, the instance of TB was similar to that in KwaZulu-Natal, very, very high, was that, yeah, the majority of these samples had mixed cultures. And when you're trying to predict AMR, that becomes an issue because if you have a strain that is sensitive, mix them in a strain that's resistant, you've got to have sophisticated enough pipelines that can actually take that on board and, and say, give you an honest report of what's going on. The problem is that, you know, what is clinically interesting and actionable, if 95% of what you see is sensitive, but 5% is resistant, and then you give the antibiotic to which that 5% is resistant, you'll probably end up with 100% resistant as your majority culture. So even minority populations are important in this setting, but it's certainly not well-defined. The other issue that became apparent to me when we were looking at that issue 
we were using metagenomics. What was happening at the time is that people were taking single colonies in lab and following it up. So they're actually purging the existing biological vari variation out of the sample and just following up one thing. Speaking to Connor yesterday, he said that, well, nowadays people will probably take a sweep to try and keep that variety alive. But this is something, if you're going to future-proof your procedures so that in the age of metagenomics, where you don't want to actually have to culture anything, you just want to take the sample, extract the sequences and call out the genotypes, including the resistance genotypes, from the, the metagenomes, this is something you have to take into account because there's a good chance you will see a mixture of things. The other thing, I would, the other one last point I'd make is that there are two reasons why you get this kind of effect. One is within host evolution. So you may have one strain, which part of which has evolved to become resistant. So that, you know, part of the population is resistant, the other part isn't, but it's all the same genotype. Contrary to what I said earlier, people do get infected twice with TB. And when you think about it in an area of high prevalence where you might be coming into contact with TB every day in crowded situations, why would you not get infected twice? But in those situations, you may have two, two completely different genotypes and you have to pull those apart. The worst case scenario is where someone gets infected twice with distinct but very closely related genotypes, where then it becomes even harder to pull them apart. So Mark, do we know, is this like a cloud from infection people get infected with, or would it be distinct, different infection events? So when someone gets infected, do they get infected with a single cell and, and the whole infection goes through a single cell bottleneck? Or let's say they got infected with 10 cells and in them, five of those cells are one genotype, five of those cells are the other genotype. I, I don't think we know what it, you know, that these kind of situations with HIV, you know, that things go through a bottleneck but it doesn't actually necessarily purge all the variation out of it sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't with tb i just don't think anyone would know i don't think it's been looked at enough to know quite how often you do get mixed infections passed on in a single transmission event so it's, it's fascinating actually the, the population dynamics i think one of the barriers for genomics especially metagenomics in the clinic is it's you know it's the amount of data they actually do produce and it's the interpretation of that data it's a lot, and I found personally been working at Sunnybrook trying to help them get accreditation via the medical microbiology kind of accreditation organizations for their use of pathogen genomics. And frankly, the accreditation agencies don't really, that I've dealt with, don't seem to have any idea what they need to do to accredit use of genomics. So that's a huge, huge logistic and legal barrier to like getting AMR genomics really kind of more widely used. Because, yeah, how do you deal with the fact that, yeah, okay, compared to our simple PCR test that, you know, we did on the TB and we found there was, everyone had a single, single infection. We found this one gene, so it's resistant to, you know, this, this antibiotic is great. But when you find, oh, no, it's a mixed infection and, you know, one of the strains is resistant to this set of antibiotics and the other is probably resistant to this set of antibiotics. And now you need to use your medical judgment to work out what you can do with that which is where I think the other kind of major component comes in. And some of that, you know, trying to do that with phage and harmonization is kind of standardized reporting of the results. Like how do we actually report those genomics and metagenomic results to clinicians so they can make meaningful decisions without kind of doing our bioinformatics thing of like, here's all the data, work it out. You know, we, we it's like, oh, but this could matter, but you know, maybe won't. So I was where I think some of Anna Christen's work uh, a few years back was really cool, especially if I think it was for TB, it was focused on, which was kind of using evidence-based approaches and speaking to clinicians kind of in this 
it's sort of process to develop, you know, a meaningful report. So yeah, accreditation and reporting, and I think those kind of tie together. And also just genomics and metagenomics kind of not being penalized for being more informative than more simple tests and working out how to kind of balance that. Yeah, I guess um, too much information can actually overwhelm people. And Anna's very famous talk, I think, was it ASM NGS? I think is one of the best talks ever that I've seen. And it was very, very clear and it made it very straightforward and simple to see, you know, this is the information that clinicians need versus the information that, you know, me as a politician would want to convey. And I'd want to tell people, you know, exactly where the SIMPs are and exactly which allele it is. But it, it doesn't impact clinical, you know, decision making at all. You know, it just overwhelms people and they ignore it. So I'm going to go to Mark Palla next. Yeah, I'm just I just amplify that. I mean, the context is everything and what you can tell through metagenomics and then through the bioinformatic analysis of metagenomes may or not be may or may not be actionable in the clinical setting uh, and it's very easy to get carried away and say oh we can show these interesting things and then find that actually nobody's going to take any action basically when clinicians use antibiotics they 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 they're being defensive in their practice they're always going to go for the broad spectrum antibiotic because they know then that they've covered all the, the options. So for you to say, well, we've got this organism, it's, it's sensitive to this you know, narrow spectrum antibiotic, then they're probably not gonna take any notice of you. What we did a, a couple of years ago was we looked at the intensive care unit microbiome and we looked at the gut microbiome of patients there. And this was another example where my assumptions were challenged. I assumed that if you, these patients all get given antibiotics. 95% of them get given antibiotics when they go in ICU. You'd expect there to be a little bit of resistance in the gut. What we found was that the gut microbiome was taken over, overwhelmed by usually a single clone of an antimicrobial, anti, antibiotic resistant organism that basically became 95% or 80, 95% of that uh, metagenome. And so you'd think, well, you know, you've detected this highly resistant Enterococcus in this in, in this metagenome. Surely this is clinically actionable. Or, or you've detected a you know multi-drug E. coli. But when we delved into the literature, I mean, obviously you could do the same thing by taking, say, people take perianal swabs and then plate them out and say, oh yeah, we've got multi-drug resistant E. coli in this person. But the evidence to show that that is a cost-effective approach, even using conventional microbiology to go and deliberately screen for, for antimicrobial resistance in carriage in those patients is not well established. So we, we kind of thought, oh, we're leaping ahead into doing it by metagenomics. But when you look back at even doing it by conventional approaches, it wasn't well established. So just because you can do a thing using metagenomics and bioinformatics doesn't mean that it'll actually be useful in the clinical setting or adopted. You have to be very careful to question all the assumptions in that whole pipeline from doing the analysis to actually being deployed somewhere. Just briefly a follow up because you comment similar situation. When we do WGS, we will generate lots of information, but not all the information are relevant to, to the physician. Usually in their mind, they, they are looking for a specific um, target for making clinical decision. And I think NGS data usually um, um, more for retrospective is rarely been used as like a, a prospective study. I mean, it's not quick enough 
comparing to those simple PCR tests. But don't, that definitely uh, whole genome sequencing would offer much more data in a short period of time. If we can generate the data within a few days, definitely some of the WGS data will be supplementary to the follow-up or the treatment, the patient in that sense. But of course, WGS data sometimes would give us some additional data, say, for example, in two cases that I encountered, we sequenced some MDR bacteria during the screening or from the patient. We detected MCR1 gene in two bacteria, which is to their surprise, because like if you need to confirm the bacteria and high MIC2 was colicidin, that you have to do some sort of specific microdilution test in which not many hospitals are equipped to do the microdilution test. But then when we detected the MCR1 gene in those bugs, in addition to the CLE, then, wow, then the whole scenario, this context changed because the physician didn't know that the, the bethogen actually is colicidin resistant. It's like even hyper kind of things in, then it's alert, like it's more, they're more sensitive in that way. So just there's some, some special cases like that, like the WS data just getting, just offer more for the, for the physician. But in other scenarios, probably the physician, they, they already have enough data on their hand based on their phenotypes to make a, a clinical judgment, but they really wanted to have WGS data just to confirm. So they, they would rather have it done. But I mean, it's a selective process. We are not, as a, as a molecular scientist, we are not making judgment which bacteria to be sequenced is there. It's always their call. So they wanted to look for something additional to look for evidence to confirm the initial phenotypic data. But to me, as a, a scientist to analyze those data, I find it to it's it's really hard for me to kill away those phenotype data because the phenotype data is an output from the Phoenix or Vitec, and they are stored in say a hospital information call center or whatever system the hospital is using, and those platform are not authorized. Uh, I have no authority to assess those data. They can print out a hard copy and then give it to me. Okay, it's like this a whole bunch of the uh, MIC of this bug, but like it's in PDF and things like that. I, 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 it's really tedious for me to type in, to translate those information in the Excel sheet or whatever, because it is like an output PDF. So I don't know how, so that's why in many, in, in a discussion in the, those metadata, I said like many of the bio samples we submitted to the, I, I would guess many of this bio samples submitted to the gene bank. The MIC are not submitted as well because like those data are in a different domain and which is not accessible either. Like it's, it's a like PDF, how, how do you find student helper just to type all this data into in the Excel sheet or in, in the bio sample submitted form, it's, it's impossible. So I'm just wondering from a clinical point of view, do we need to go direct from sample in terms of speed in order to be able to make this something which is viable? So for TB is a special case because it's a slow, but for other bugs, do we need to be able to have a solution which is direct from sample rather than having to go through the isolation and whole genome sequencing? So that, so that was kind of the question from a clinical perspective. And I, and I guess from the bioinformatics point of view, it still seems to me that that metagenomics approach is still a little way off being ready for prime time. So I just wondered whether people had comments on that perspective. Mark? You mean to go yeah. direct sequencing without a culture? You mean this yeah. what? Yes. I mean, I, th I think that, yeah, it's an interesting question because it, it's one of the things that 
you know, I, I've taken seriously. You think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? We could cut out so much time and effort. And then you sit back and you, it would be interesting. I mean, there's a literature on it about how, how often is action taken on the result of laboratory tests. And you have to, you have to be sanguine about that. You, you, you think that everything you're doing is really important. It's going to make a big difference. But as clinicians will often just, they'll say, well, we're going to have to give the broadest spectrum antibiotics or, or, or we're going to have to, to be very careful. We're going to start treating this patient, even though, first of all, they start treating the patient without having a specific pathogen. And often they don't get a specific pathogen, but they say, well, we think this patient is infected. We're going to give them broad spectrum antibiotics. When you do get a specific pathogen, they, they may or may not change. I mean, but usually the, only in those cases, they escalate upwards to using more powerful, more broad spectrum agents. Very seldom do they, they go down. And even when you tell them, oh, yeah, we've got this, this multidrug resistant thing, you know, how much action is taken? And actually, I was, I was um, putting my hand up earlier for another point, which I think should be made when you're talking about the, the bioinformatics of AMR. Obviously, the one key point is detecting AMR, detecting the, the, the resistance genes, predicting phenotypes and so forth. But another key role that we can use uh, genome information for is in unpicking the of AMR. So how is it spreading around the hospital? How is it spreading around the community? We did one study where we tracked a multidrug system, Acetobacter, over a very prolonged outbreak in a hospital. Part of controlling AMR is antibiotic stewardship and appropriate use of antibiotics, but infection control measures are just as important. And so knowing where the organism is, how it's spreading, what we discovered in this study we did was that there was cryptic spread going on in a burns theater where patients who had burns were getting infected and then they're getting their burns debrided in this operating theater. And that was where the organism was traveling from one patient to another. But we were able to show that because we could see that the genomes from successive patients who've been to that operation were identical. And, and so their whole genome sequencing uh, allowed us to control antimicrobial resistance in a way that you might not anticipate by just thinking, oh, all you're doing is predicting the gene. Predicting the genotypes and the, and the epidemiology is really important. So, so you know, that's, that's important. And with the intensive care unit study we did, where we, we, there we did look at metagenomes, and we, got, we were able to genotype the, the, the vancomycin-resistant enterococci we're getting out. And we were able to show that in some of the patients, they had indistinguishable genotypes or one or two SNPs different. So it was inconceivable. This was just by chance. These patients had acquired this from a common, from each other or from a common source. And we went back to the clinicians and we said, What's, what about these patients then? And they said, ah, yeah, they were in adjacent rooms in the same part of the ICU at the same time. So what you're saying is that there was cryptic transmission resistant organism between patients. We didn't screen for that. We wouldn't have known about it. They were colonized, not infected. But nonetheless, it shows that our infection control measures are not good enough. Having this genome-based information and being able to say beyond all reasonable doubt that these things are transmitted here in this specific context, it does inform behavior beyond just treatment with antibiotics. Absolutely. And uh, this kind of perspective sequencing does help set the context for a lot of this stuff. I think practically WGS can 
we are able to sequence the bacteria without the culture, but it also has to be in the context. I think it, we have to create a workflow that justify for the diagnostic lab to, to do in such a way, because say in, in a, like in a clinical laboratory on a monthly basis, we, we are culturing almost 6,000 bacteria. So depend, coming on different contexts, like screening, some doc physician, infectious disease deficient, they are asking to do screening, say swap from skin. And then we had that 6,000 culture came from skin swap, urine, blood cultures, whatever, from different kinds of collection. So, and then they, they have to do up to the this kind of collection, then they are culturing the bacteria on different selective media, some chrome agar to see which bacteria are ESBL or CPO and things like that. So based on that, probably only 10% of them like MDR or less than that are MDR. And then depending on the physician decision, senior consultant decision, whether any particular bug need to go further for whole genome sequence has the value for whole genome sequencing because say Sinovector, they don't think like it's intrinsic resistant to CLE, then they have no interest to find, to confirm if they have an intrin intrinsic resistance. So then probably people go for the gram negative, say CAPCID, because they want to see whether they, uh, there's a, like a novel genetic elements or they basically most of the physicians are not interested in ST unless like it belongs to the SOLI or ST1193. They have no interest at all because it doesn't communicate clinically in terms of treatment. So I think practically it's feasible, but sometimes it doesn't fit into their clinical workflow because usually, I, I don't know, like in the public health lab, in a reference lab, maybe they have a different workflow, but in a clinical hospital setting, they have a set of protocol, a SOP in making clinical decision, how these WGS technique, whole genome sequencing, AMR genomics can fit into the decision-making process. I think that's more important. And I think at the mo moment, I don't see, I mean, I think the physician, they don't see how, because and also it's very, the operation cost is really high comparing to a simple home AGA test, because like considering like you have 6,000 cultures, I mean, on a weekly or even monthly basis, we are not able just to do use WGS to replace the conventional techniques for screening. And also, uh, given the sample came from different kinds of specimens, not all, I, I don't think all the specimens are. You can do WGS on different kinds of specimens. So, yeah. Maybe one day we'll just signal who's to know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, the, the, there are some pipelines that you can sequence to culture and then to see like the, whether there's a mix and even like I have seen papers in microbial genomics saying that you can like even as if there's a mixed culture on the petri dish, you can sequence all the bacteria and then based on the risk to assign. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe, it's, yeah, I, I think it's feasible, but uh, how, how we can could, to operate that and not all the technicians, like we, you can hire a high number of technicians who can do the conventional microbiology techniques, but you, 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 you won't be able to find that many technicians who can do the WGS or the hospital is not willing to. And also the other the aspect is the accreditation process. I don't think that at the moment there's any licensing for the clinical staff 
purely based on library preparation for whole genome sequencing. At least I'm not aware of like even in the CAP in United States or in UK, I don't think there's a licensing. So then many of the technicians, if they need to, they need to require a license to work in a lab. Right? If you only have the techniques to do molecular, you are not able to get into the operation of the, the lab. I think that's another issue that we have to work with the senior level. So yeah, both ways, you have to standardize protocol, then you get training and then people, technicians get licensed to do this kind of work, then they can work in a clinical lab. Otherwise it's hard. Grand. I'm going to let Finley come in next. So it sounds like what, what the real challenge is, is how do we use public health and infection control who are quite keen on genomics, especially without break tracing, et cetera, as our Trojan horse into medical microbiology, diagnostics, infectious disease treatment side. And I don't know if anyone has any kind of comments or ideas on that. I, I do. I recall one hospital in uh, in the UK, In they were being fined. They get fined if they have too many C. diff cases. And so what they were doing was they were sequencing the C. diff cases to prove that the C. diff didn't come from the hospital, but it was acquired in the community to avoid getting a fine. So it is useful in that respect. So uh, Anthony Underwood. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in the public health arena, we can afford to make some mistakes, not big ones, but it's not as critical as treating a patient. So I think we can use the public health arena to do the kind of surveillance kind of thing, look at the concordance, figure out what's going on so we can get things better and learn our lessons in that way. I guess the other thing, big thing for me, and something I've found during the, the project I've been involved with is actually it's relatively easy running the bioinformatics pipelines to, to, to process your genomic data to get a, a result, albeit in, a, in a, a fairly sort of archaic format or hard to read format. The much the bigger challenge is going from that result then to what does it mean? And I think that's where kind of that, that kind of intelligence encoded in, in a way which is not just in someone's head and an expert's head which is so often the case, it is where the real challenge comes, particularly where there are nuances and, you know, you can have particular beta-lactamases, which, you know, different alleles of the same gene can actually, you know, be, you know, can, call, can allow resistance to cephalosporins or carbapenems, for, for example, and trying to understand the nuance of that is very, very challenging. And I think that's, that's kind of why part of the, the, this um, hackathon that I'm involved with, I'm trying to bring together some of that sort of metadata into one pool so we can at least look at that together. But there's a lot more to do. There's, the, there's, there's a huge amount to do in terms of actually somehow distilling that intelligence and writing down a series of rules, albeit may not be a simple decision tree, but maybe some, some kind of rules which enable people to make that interpretation. I'm going to ask Lee to come in here now because he's been very quiet. Definitely been very quiet, but I'm not an AMR expert. I've just been listening and this has been a fantastic discussion. There was one twist that I, that I wanted to follow up on. It's almost like that Jurassic Park quote, like, like, should we have been doing it? It sounded like we, like, like we may be venturing into the, into the legal perspective with this. You said that the hospital would want to sequence these genomes for liability purposes. Like, are we going to feed into the legal system with this? Are we going into a territory we don't really want to be in? That, that is a minefield, and I don't think we're going to solve that here, you know, uh, particularly when you get into pathogens like, I don't know, say HIV and whatever, you know, could you go back and say he infected me and blah, blah, blah. It could be uh, quite a minefield. There was a study, I forgot where, that was discussed at Applied Bioinformatics and Public Health Microbiology, I think from the University of Maryland, and they were studying like where all their AMR, Klebsiella were coming from. I mean, they basically found out it was coming from 
like the pipes coming out of the sink. Like they couldn't get rid of it. You guys remember that? And that was they had. I think they have a whole sink lab, right? University of Virginia or something. They have like like the the PI from that project. I forget I forget her name, but she set up like a whole lab, and they like that is now their like project where they have like all these sink openings and they have plates and measure how far things disperse. Yeah, biofilms yes. in in the drains, and anytime you turn on the tap, it aerosolizes everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, could a hospital be sequencing all this stuff and? They can find out if it's if it's their fault or someone else's fault. If it's their fault, could they hide it? Not not that I'm saying anyone's doing that right now, but like that's this is a whole minefield that we are not going to solve here. I agree. Yeah, this is very sensitive. Yeah, very sensitive issue. Yeah. There's a case in our hospital that like a uh, we are children hospital. Several babies are infected with pseudomonas, and then the, the physicians wanted to investigate whether wanted to use WGS to confirm, to investigate whether this is an outbreak. We did the WGS and then we find out it's like a polyclonal. Our polyclonal is not like single cloning um, pseudomonas. They are all different. They all belong to different sequence type of the pseudomonas. But we, and then when we try to report the data to the infection control, the meeting, actually they, they didn't like it. Like, like we investigate this case at all. So, so in the end, we all the data is suppressed, like like we, we cannot carry on doing that. Like, so it's blocked. So it's very sensitive, even in turn, it's like they don't, the hospital didn't really want the public health senior, like if there's an outbreak in a hospital, they have reported to the Ministry of Public Health, things like that. So it would affect the image of the hospital in operation and also funding, whatever. I was going to say that uh, in, in the UK, we have a national health service. One hopes that there's a, you know, there's a more of a open and transparent and altruistic approach. But even there, now we have in, in, individual trusts that are kind of competing with each other. It's not in the interest of the trust for everyone to know. Oh, it's your fault that you've got this organism that's been traveling around your wards for a long period of time. In fact, when I gave a, a, a public talk, well, a, a, a scientific talk about the Asnita outbreak, Asnita factor outbreak that we had in Birmingham, one of the people in the audience said, you know, hearing what you've said, you met the officer out and around the back and shot them because they weren't doing their job properly. This is dereliction of duty. And you sort of think, yeah, OK, you, you can you can play the blame game. And, and it, it, it does become quite it could do. Uh, I mean, the only thing that I've noticed that when you're dealing with clinical data and, and, and whole genomes and stuff, you, you can generally get get it through. I mean, we did we published our ICU study, published the Asnita factor study, and nobody in the in the trust headquarters said, no, this is reputationally damaging, you can't publish it. But when I've worked with people in the animal health area, you're, you're, not, you're allowed to know that this pig got this brachyspira in the northeast of England. But the idea that you might actually know which farm it was on or which town it was in or any context at all, that is totally forbidden because then the, the farmer would lose their livelihood. And it's just so it could be worse than in human clinical medicine. I was just going to make another point, actually, coming back to what Clement was saying about the technological side of things. It's interesting to contrast us trying to get whole genome sequencing and, and even metagenome sequencing into the clinical arena, whether with Illumina or now with Nanopore, with the advent of Molditoff. And Molditoff basically rammed its way into the clinical microbiology laboratory just about the time I was leaving and wandering off into academic life. But it actually, it transformed things uh, and it became very much the, 
that that was the method that people used to quickly identify organisms and it's not digital and so for those of us who like our data to be digital and like a tidy kind of universe it's like what you're just looking at this kind of messy kind of wiggle matching effectively and you're you're drawing actionable data and they say yeah yeah but we can do that in minutes you know you you can you give us a genome in the same amount of time in the, the same price that's so cheap and whatever? So it's been interesting that they're the competitor. And I wonder if there are lessons to be learned. I mean, maybe if nanopore becomes the, the next Amazon of, of genomics and becomes a predatory monopolistic company, maybe they would be able to push it themselves into the clinical lab. But otherwise, I don't know when it's going to happen. Anyway, maybe you edit that out. Well, the uh, arena for a long time, but but never made it. Yeah. Okay. Is there any final words? Right. We'll go around. Uh, maybe we'll start with Finley. Especially with the pandemic, the use of genomics in surveillance, public health, infection control side of things really is like where it's been showing its use. And I think the biggest, some of the biggest barriers is really getting to getting used more actively in the clinic is getting it accepted in that more diagnostic mindset, that side of the clinical apps, which I think is bad for We sometimes kind of can kind of homogenize from the outside. It's like, oh, it's just the clinical apps, the medical apps, just some of the same people, they're just with different hats on. And I think, yeah, one of the big barriers is like integrating into that medical lab tech kind of hierarchy and world and like dealing with accreditation and all that process that so people feel they can trust the data and also communicating results in a meaningful way that is actually actionable. And I think, yeah, there's some great work kind of happening in those areas as well, coming out of public health. Okay, uh, Mark? I think an interesting point is that with whole genome sequencing, we can look at where the antimicrobial resistance is arising and where the reservoirs are and address some of these perennial issues. So that the medics will say, it's not us, it's all those people in veterinary practice, but they're the ones that are actually making all the selective pressure to breed this stuff up. And then the people in veterinary practice say, oh, it's not us, it's the farmers who are misusing antibiotics. And, and it, it, it would be interesting to have, and it is interesting to see, you know, how far are uh, resistance genes moving around from totally different contexts. And, and I mean, even looking at hospitals, you know, hospitals put their sewage out into the outside world. That sewage is full of antimicrobial resistance genes, and we don't know, don't know anything about that. You know, does that matter? Does it not? There's there's lots of interesting questions that can be addressed in the much broader context rather than just looking at. Thank you. Yeah, and I believe there's a study looking at sewage and distance from hospital with uh, vancomycin resistance found in bacteria, and it was very closely related, unfortunately. Okay, Clement. Yeah, I do agree. The uh, genome sequencing definitely helped to to make that clinical. Di- decision. I think the value is there. Like, I think that most of, I mean, mo- although the te- that there might be some limitation or limitation or maybe in terms of cost and also, but I think most physicians, they like it. They like the technology and they like to have this kind of data around, but probably who is making a call, like what I said, like usually they decide which sample to be sequenced, not us. So, and I think, but, uh, and also it's important for the decision, they understand the concept and the technology and also the power of that. And I think the pandemic helps in many ways and they like it, but of course, I, there's some technical and practical challenges. I think there's still some challenge and limitation. Yeah, but I, I do see the value. They, they, they really like it. Yeah, so I, I would say they like it, but sometimes given the current framework and also the system, how to 
make better integration of this technology into the daily workflow. Probably that's something we need to discuss, maybe even with the higher level, uh, the national level as well. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm really optimistic for the future. I think when we look back to where we've come over the last few years, we've made huge strides in actually determining AMR, the phenotype of AMR based on genomics. I think it's looking really rosy. I think there's still some big hurdles to cut, overcome. And there was a paper by uh, Ronan Doyle and colleagues, um, Catherine Harris, et cetera, microbial genomic, massive discordance between bioinformatics prediction methods. And so I think there's a, what we need to do better at is getting our benchmarking better, which is why it's great the hackathon has a, has a benchmarking channel as part of that. And when we start to see better concordance and better agreement between the different softwares and the different databases, then I think the adoption will be much greater in the future. Okay, thank you so much for joining me. So that's uh, Clement, Mark, Finley, and Anthony and Lee. And we've had a great discussion today. And I think this is really a, an exciting area for the future. And I hope that we can speak again and we'll be that bit closer to getting genomics into the clinic and uh, being quite useful. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.